Let's pray and ask for God's help as we come to hear from his word. Uh, Gracious Father, you promised in James 1 that whoever hears your word uh, and puts it into practice is blessed uh, in what they do. So please have mercy now that we would hear, we would trust, uh, and we would obey. Uh, Father, I'm weak, uh, I'm tired, and I can do nothing except uh, by your Spirit working in me. So please help me now to teach this word clearly uh, and faithfully as I ought, uh, that you would be honoured in the preaching and hearing of your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, when I was working in a seafood restaurant in South Bank many years ago, we were invited to cook at a fancy charity event where high-end businesses could buy a table for a couple of thousand dollars and then restaurants were invited to cook at it and it was a pretty big deal. We took it very seriously and so we went with one of our specialties, bouillabaisse with lobster and scampi. Essentially, it's fancy fish soup. Uh, it took three days to make and it was loaded with fancy and expensive ingredients. We'd made it, the time was come to load up and go to the event. We started taking everything down to the cars in the car park when the unthinkable happened. A certain third-year apprentice uh, was the one taking the soup on the trolley. And I guess you could say he, or she, hypothetically, wasn't overly cautious. We approached the car park, we went down a ramp, and off slid the bouillabaisse to create an almighty pink, very fishy glaze to the concrete floor. As I looked down to see my Birkenstocks covered in soup, I looked up to see my boss with open mouth and eyes fixed on me. Nowhere to run, no excuses for my carelessness, no way of rectifying my mistake with the remaining hour we had before we were due to arrive and start serving. Utterly exposed, very awkward, very uncomfortable. Now, I imagine for some of us, this is a feeling or experience, maybe not with bouillabaisse, uh, that we've been through, whether it's from your parents, your spouse, your friends, or even your boss. Caught out and exposed is exactly the situation we find James's readers in in chapter 4. Uh, You should recall last week in James 3, he finished by laying out the reality that there are two kinds of wisdom, earthly and heavenly. Uh, He says that heavenly wisdom, it's up on the screen for you, heavenly wisdom is characterized by being peace-loving, open to reason and full of mercy. Earthly wisdom, on the other hand, it's marked by bitter envy, disorder and especially selfishness. But James laid out these two realities. He wasn't putting out like a mere hypothetical just so they knew that. In the opening three verses of chapter 4, he says to his original readers that there is absolutely no doubting where they are at. Your wisdom is clearly earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. If wisdom from above is marked by peace, That is certainly not you. Verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Do they not come from your desires that battle within you? He says to them, think about your experience. What is causing these fights and quarrels that you're having? We, we, We find out this is a church that is marked by bitter conflict. 
And the funny thing is, when you ask people what's causing the conflict, there's usually a consistent answer. It's somebody else. But James says, don't blame them. The cause of your conflict is your own desire. Now, the word desire, as the ESV calls it, uh, passions, it translates the Greek word from which we get the word hedonism. It's the pursuit of pleasure. But it's consistently used in the New Testament to describe sinful, self-indulgent, worldly passion. James is saying there's no doubt, no question about why you're in conflict. You're selfish. It's clear evidence of your earthly wisdom. But they're fighting not simply because their desires are wrong, they are also frustrated. They can't get what they want, and so it makes them turn on each other. Verse 2, you desire but you do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. Now it seems unlikely that they were actually killing each other, But the context of uh, chapter 3 and the application that James gives here in chapter 4, verse 11, show us that the fighting and conflict is being done with their mouth. This is a war of words. But it doesn't make it less significant. In Matthew 5, Jesus connected hateful speech with murder. And the same idea is found in 1 John 3. He says, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. These are Christians in bitter verbal conflict, fighting with one another out of envy and selfishness. And James is exposing their behavior for what it is. It's earthly wisdom. But as always the case in the letter of James, their treatment of each other is an indication of their relationship with God. He continues in verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. These Christians are fighting because they don't get what they want, but they're not asking God for it. God, who they know is a generous giver, as it says in Matthew 7. But even when they do ask, when they pray, they're only doing it to fulfill their own selfish desires so they can spend on their earthly pleasures. James is writing to a congregation that has been completely gripped by worldly materialism. The implication in verse 3 is that they are praying, asking God for money, which James doesn't actually rebuke. But he does say they're praying for money purely to feed their self-indulgent materialism. He's saying this, the evidence of your life is clear and damning. You are unspiritual, worldly people. And it's easy to judge them for this behavior, isn't it? But isn't this actually so often us? In my 10 years at Bundy, I can scarcely think of a time when I haven't seen experienced or heard about conflict between believers here. What was the last conflict you had with another Christian? Why, what was it over? Aren't we so often driven by our own selfishness? Don't we find it so easy, even natural, to create conflict with others because of what I want or need? Our envy of someone else's job, money, relationship, looks, or just their whole life, which seems so much better than yours. And so we turn on each other 
Isn't there so often evidence of worldly selfishness in our lives and especially in the way we treat each other? Reflect on that. What do you pray for and why? James points to the evidence in their lives of their earthly wisdom and now he comes to lay the charge in verses 4 to 6 and he's saying to them and to us that we need to understand how bad worldliness really is. We see this really clearly in the language. James consistently addresses his readers as my brothers and sisters in this letter. But it changes dramatically in verse 4. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. For the professing Christian, worldliness is nothing less than adultery. Now, that language is pretty striking, perhaps even cringeworthy. But it's the language of marriage that's consistently used in the Bible for the relationship between God and his covenant people. You should have heard it in the Hosea 1 reading. Israel is described as an adulterous wife in verse 2. Or consider the words of Jeremiah 3.20. He says, God says, Like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you, Israel, have been unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. This language continues into the New Testament in Ephesians 5. Paul outlines instructions for marriage between a husband and a wife, and they are to be based on like Christ and his church. The same thing is seen in Revelation 21 as a beautiful picture of heaven is given. And what is it? It's the celebration of a marriage between Christ and his bride. And I wonder if this is how you think about being Christian. I asked that to some of our youth and they said, no, it's weird. Pretty profound. But what about you? And I think to answer that, just maybe consider, how would you talk about or explain your Christianity to others? I was chatting with a Christian recently who was trying to explain to their non-Christian friends why they don't get drunk. They simply said, the Bible says I shouldn't. But I think, in essence, this is to tell people that Christianity is essentially a strict set of rules that we are to follow. Some of us think about our Christianity as a transaction. We trust Jesus, he gives us eternal life, and now we have to do what he says. It's what I would call the Jean Valjean approach from Les Mis. Now, this is for you guys. Let's, let's hear it. My soul belongs to God, I know. Oh, don't be ashamed if you're a closet Les Mis fan. I made that bargain long ago. Christianity that is essentially a duty and an obligation that we begrudgingly have to carry out. How do you think about your Christianity, your relationship with Jesus? James is saying that worldliness is no small matter. It's nothing less than adultery because it is unfaithfulness to the God who has lovingly bound himself to us, forgiven and redeemed us at the cost of his only son. Do you think about, do you talk about your Christianity as being brought into a loving relationship with God himself to know and enjoy him forever, to flourish 
as you live his way, as he speaks for your blessing and benefit. Friendship with the world is nothing less than adultery because to borrow the language of the wedding vows, it is a betrayal of the promise to forsake all others. And so offensive is our friendship with the world that James tells us that it is to make God our enemy. To be friends with the world is not to say that we can't enjoy anything about this world. Friendship carries the sense of loyalty and allegiance. It's what James has been addressing in the whole letter. It's to say that Jesus is Lord, but to have your value and behaviours controlled by what the world says, not what Jesus says. It's seen in their selfishness as they abuse the poor or just neglect them for their own benefit. It's their self-indulgence that curses others to bring themselves up. It's the desire to promote self and ultimately ignore Jesus. And worldliness is especially seen in how we treat others and how we view or use our money, as chapter 4 is showing us. And God hates it. When he saved and brought us to himself at great cost to himself, he had no interest in half-hearted devotion or a Sunday Christian or mere lip service. As James shows us the horror of spiritual adultery, he also points us to the jealousy of God. Verse 5. Do you, think without, uh, do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? God is a jealous God. When he saved Israel to be his people, he commanded them when giving the Ten Commandments that they must not have any other gods or make any idols because, Exodus 20 verse 5, the Lord is a jealous God. He has no interest in divided loyalty or part-time devotion. He jealously longs for what is rightly his. Just as a wife or a husband should be jealous for the affection of their spouse, so God is jealous when our affections, our loyalty or devotion goes anywhere else. God's jealousy is a sign of his love his loyalty and his care for his people. He longs that all of who we are would be given to him. It's just as Jesus called us to do, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And can you see how James is really kind of bringing it all together here? In the first three chapters, he has added layer upon layer to expose their double-mindedness, their half-hearted Christianity as they try to have one foot in the world and one foot in with Jesus. And in chapter 4, it's the great crescendo. He brings it all together and says, enough is enough. It's why James is such a direct and confronting letter. We need to be challenged in our complacency towards our sin because God longs to have all of our devotion to him because that and that alone is true Christianity. James is trying to shake them and us out of complacency and address our sin. And so... As we've been going through James, this is where we need to ask ourselves, how have we responded? 
as he's called you to listen to God's word, to do what it says, to care for the poor and needy, to be obeying God in every respect of your life, to have consistent speech and to forsake earthly wisdom, how have you responded? What have you done, if anything? James is telling us tonight that our friendship with the world in whatever form it takes is nothing less than spiritual adultery and it is an affront to, the God, to God and it makes him our enemy. But as the weight of our sin hits us, as James's confrontation washes over us and we stand exposed, the words of verse 6 could not be more comforting. But he gives more grace. Here we find, I think, one of the most profoundly beautiful realities of the Bible. That every time the holy God confronts our sin, he at the same time provides the forgiveness we need for ongoing relationship with him. He gives more grace no matter how great the hurt we've caused no matter how long we've been doing it there is more grace and so it's as we see how offensive our sin really is we see how amazing his grace really is grace that is sufficient to overcome our failure to meet his demands grace that ensures we are always welcome when we turn back to him and that of course is the point of why James is writing this letter the point is not to wallow in your guilt and just feel ashamed the point is to come back to God who gives more grace verse 6 promises more grace but it's not automatic the ESV draws it out better uh, it says, but he gives more grace, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humility is the essential response to receive grace. It's to humble yourself under God's authority and accept his verdict on your lifestyle and sin. James is calling them to return to God. It's a call to humble repentance, and he makes it very clear what this means. Uh, there's a deliberate inclusio where verse 6, you've got the word humble repeated then again in verse 10. And then what comes in between verses 6 and 10 is James showing us what humility looks like in practice. The first, verse 7, is to submit to God. We submit to God by accepting his right to rule our lives and confront our sin, whether it's calling us to adopt new attitudes or behaviours or to stop what we are already doing. And remember, this is exactly what James's readers aren't doing. We see in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 4 that they don't submit to anyone because all they do is fight and argue out of their own selfishness. In fact, the whole letter James has highlighted that they pick and choose what they agree with or what is convenient for them to obey. But humble repentance submits to Jesus as Lord over every aspect of your life. Jesus said in Mark 8, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross 
and follow me. But as we submit to God, we must also resist the devil, verse 7. Although we don't blame the devil for our sin, we saw that very clearly in chapter 1, we acknowledge that he is present and at work behind the lies of this world and actively working to bring people away from God through whatever means necessary. And especially to resist him is to see worldliness for what it is. One author says that if you want to see the devil's work, simply go to a shopping centre and see what people are buying. He's having a field day selling people a materialistic dream that will see them both unfulfilled now and punished forever. We resist him, verse 7, and he will flee. As Christians, we don't ignore or trivialise the devil, but nor do we fear him. Nothing will cause the devil and his schemes greater upset than our willing and joyful submission to God. And as we do that, he will flee. It's both a promise and a reality. And so we submit to God and we flee our selfish desires. And as the devil flees us, we must then run to God. Verse 8, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Coming near to God is put in terms of a prayer of repentance. James makes that clear as he addresses them as you sinners and you double-minded. Drawing near to God is to acknowledge your sins. But more than that, the language of washing and purifying, it's language from the Old Testament. It's to come to the temple and receive God's provision for forgiveness. To come near to God is to embrace his character and trust in his promises. And so for us, to come near to God is to cling to the cross of Christ. It's to accept again Jesus' redeeming work on our behalf as he paid the price for our sins. It's to cling to that promise that when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us. And did you hear that wonderful promise in verse 8? Come near to God and he will come near to you. God is never reluctant to embrace us. We see that beautifully in the parable that Jesus told of the lost son. The rebellious son, he's gone off, squandered his father's money, he hits rock bottom and returns to his father. And we read Luke 15, he's got his speech ready. Luke 15 verse 20, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. God willingly embraces those who return. And notice that James calls them to wash their hands and purify their hearts. Humble repentance takes place both in our attitudes and desires, that's the heart, but also practically in the way we live, that's the hands. And we see those two things in the verses that follow. Verse 9, he calls them to change their perspective. Grieve, mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, they're not the kind of uplifting words you'd find on a poster at Kurong, so I made my own. And you can buy it later if you like. 
Uh, some of you might be thinking, this is it. This is, this is kind of what I've been expecting. This is classic joyless Christianity. But the point is not that we are joyless because James commanded us to have joy back in chapter 1. Verse 9 is the language of the prophets as they warned of God's coming judgment on sin. Listen to Joel 2. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. That is the day when he comes in judgment is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart with fasting and weeping and mourning. To weep, wail and mourn is to change your perspective of your sins. It's to see them as they are. Things that offend the God who loves you, to see them as things that will invoke his judgment. True repentance includes changing our view of sin. Maybe we need posters with verse 9 on them because I actually think this is what's missing so often from our repentance. We view our sin essentially as things that we love and enjoy but just can't do. We treat repentance like ordering a coffee. We know why we're at the cafe. We know what we want. We've had it before. We'll probably go back tomorrow. So we walk in, order, and then leave. Repentance can become so routine that we just go, deliver the words, and leave. But no, says James, weep, wail, and mourn. Change your perspective. These sins, no matter how small that you've made them or we pretend they are, are the very things that bring God's judgment. They are the sins that require nothing less than the death of Jesus for my forgiveness. It's what we've just sung. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Sent of heaven, God's own son, to purchase and redeem and reconcile the very ones who nailed him to that tree. Lyrics that remind us that it's our sin that deserves Death, the death that Jesus willingly took. So consider, what do you usually grieve? What was the last thing that really caused you great sorrow or mourning? As I reflected on that question, I think there was a common trend for me. Melbourne traffic, poor coffee, and probably the state of the Australian cricket team. I've had whole days affected by my rage from traffic. I've been deeply grieved by the sin of others and yet willingly brushed off my own laziness, greed, lust or selfishness. What about you? What do you do when you see your sin? So often I think we just ask God to forgive us and then leave it there. Our repentance can make it seem like our sin is just an inconvenience. And so I think true repentance must ask God to give us a godly sorrow for our sin and a changed perspective. And do you notice what James promises as we do that in verse 10? Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. 
Do those words sound familiar to you? They are directly from Jesus and they come at the conclusion of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I'll read it. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector, he stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Humility receives the grace of God that is sufficient to cover over all our sin and assures us of his acceptance. And so as we're convicted of our sin and worldliness, we must ask if we are constantly coming back to God to receive his grace time and time again. Are you doing that? Is humble repentance, and by that I mean all of what James has said here, not just telling God I've stuffed up again, are you doing all of them, accepting his verdict on your sin, that it's not just right, but good for you to hear and respond to? Are you coming back to God as he confronts your sin, whether he does it through this series in James or reading the Bible by yourself or growth group or even through the words of another Christian? Are you humbling yourself before God so that you might receive more grace? Because as we do that, as we embrace more grace, we are then compelled to change. Genuine repentance is always seen in practice. Jesus makes that clear in Luke 3, and central to Paul's teaching as he lays it out in Acts, is that repentance is to be demonstrated in deeds. And so James confronts their worldliness, calls them to repent. He concludes with the clear change that must take place for them. Verse 11, he says, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, one who is able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbour? Speech is a dominant theme in James, and this command, I think, continues the teaching on the tongue that we looked at a couple of weeks ago at the start of chapter 3. And he says to them, stop slandering and judging. To slander and judge is to make a personal attack on other people, especially by making an assessment on the spiritual state of others. And I think Christians are really good at this. I think we like doing this. Now, that's not to say we can't have hard conversations or challenge each other about how we're going. That's an act of love, and I think that's what James is doing in this letter. But how often do we question the motivations of others, make broad accusations about other Christians, never to their face though? We love to do this, either to make others look worse or just make ourselves look and feel better about our own spirituality. And James says, stop. 
This is serious business for a Christian because a refusal to change your behaviour is actually to reject God himself. James says, there's only one lawgiver and judge, and it's not you. God says, love your neighbour, but you judge them instead. So although you might never ever say it out loud, when you refuse to change or obey God's word, you are declaring to him, I know better. I think Tim Keller drew this out beautifully when he said, sin always begins with the character assassination of God. And so as we grieve our sin and see our behavior for what it is, James finishes with a warning to those that might listen but not change. It was pretty subtle in verse 12, uh, but it's also very clear. He says, God gives grace to more uh, gives more grace to those who humble themselves, but to refuse to humble yourself is to reject the God who is able to save and destroy. And so as we're confronted in it with our sin, we are always left with a choice. Will we come to back to God in humble repentance or not? He is able to save. He's the God who gives more grace to those who humble themselves. But he is also the God who can and will destroy. He is the God of just judgment. And so James leaves us with the question tonight, will you come back to God? As you see your sin, are you coming back in humble repentance? And especially, is your repentance seen as you commit yourself to change, even if it's hard, costly, a long-term sin? Are you seeing change? Can you say those wonderful words with John Newton? I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. By the grace of God, I am what I am. The God who bound himself to you in immeasurable love. God who jealously longs for you to be totally devoted to him, exposes our sins, yet willingly stands ready to give more grace. But we must never take him lightly. He is the God who can both save and destroy. Will you, are you coming back to God? I'm going to close with a prayer uh, from the words of Thomas Cromer. Let's pray. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, judge of all men, we acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness, which we from time to time most grievously have committed by thought, word, and deed, against thy divine majesty, provoking most justly thy wrath and indignation against us, we do earnestly repent and are heartily sorry for these our misdoings. The remembrance of them is grievous unto us, 
The burden of them is intolerable. Have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, most merciful Father. For thy Son, our Lord Jesus Christ's sake, forgive us all that is past, and grant that we may hereafter serve and please thee in newness of life, to the honour and glory of thy name, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.